good Wednesday morning, and today we'll be talking with John about three quotations that change the way he thinks. This is going to be a three-part series. In addition, just to make a plug, one, if you enjoy this podcast, be sure to subscribe, and two, if you have questions for John, you can ask them at www.johnpatrick.ca forward slash ask, or you can just go to his website, johnpatrick.ca, and you can find that on his website in the podcast area. So go ahead, John, three quotations that changed the way you think. Two of them are poetry. In fact, all three are poetry in a sense. Uh, And that, of course, is not unimportant because a poet says in a page what a novelist takes a book to say. And so you always need to think about the poet a lot more. And they always get to everything before everyone else. But the one that um, I want to start with is from T.S. Eliot, Choruses on the Rock, written in the 1930s, but he saw what was coming. And he wrote this, Where is the wisdom we have lost in knowledge? Where is the knowledge we have lost in information? Now, you can think about that for a long while, but it's very clear that he, he what he saw as already present is now undeniably present. Uh, most students are in deep trouble because of it. Uh, I usually use a medical example. I say, information is a medical student. You put in the stimulus, you get the information back. Knowledge is a resident who's a good one and knows how to take the information and apply it to the patient. Wisdom is what you want when you're dying and you want that wisdom to be in the physician who knows where you've got to in your life. Now, wisdom doesn't occur in the modern university uh, because, of course, as the Bible teaches, uh, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and we don't fear the Lord anymore and we're beginning to realize what that's going to do because who judges the judges? If, if nobody fears the consequences of what they're doing, then they'll do what they like if they are Darwinian. So, we're in an information-rich society. And when I realized that, and realized what was happening, it changed my whole teaching approach. Um, And that was, what, 30 years ago. I decided I needed to do something about this because of the next stimulus that occurred in relation to this quotation. Um, I was invigilating the Christmas examinations we all have to take our turn and it was my turn and so the big gymnasium full of students taking exams from different professors you know I was just there to see that no flagrant uh, cheating was going on as far as I could detect it and then something interesting happened a few minutes after the exam had started I was given a note by the porter saying they had just received a telephone saying that there was a bomb in the area of the gymnasium and so you have to take such notes seriously and I got the students attention and said look there's what is almost certainly a scam but we've had a note saying there's a bomb been planted so please leave in an orderly fashion uh, because that would be most efficient Uh, and go for a 20-minute walk and then you can come back. Leave your exam paper on the desk. 
but take all your bags with you. Um, so off they went. I should have noticed that nobody was appeared to be particularly fussed. There was no hysterics. Uh, I went for a walk too. Put my coat on and uh, it was after all December in uh, in Canada. Uh, and I got to the far end of the parking lot and there were a group of students gathered around the back of a, a pickup and one said to the other, you idiot, you're supposed to remember the fourth question. It was obvious that they were responsible or they were part of a, a collective that was responsible for the bomb scare. It was sophisticated or semi-sophisticated cheating. Now I realised I would never have come across that except by happen chance. And I, I started thinking about it. Were my students part of this process? Were they cheating too? Well, they were Darwinians. That would be the logical thing to do if they could get away with it. But I was quite determined that no student should get a good mark in my class by cheating. But how was I going to prevent that? And after thinking about it for a little while, I realised what I had to do was set an exam in which cheating as they knew it was not possible. So I never gave another examination hall exam. All my exams now became totally open book. Uh, talk to anyone, go to the library, whatever. Um, but it had a time limit on it, so you couldn't get somebody else to do it for you. Or if you did, I would probably pick that up. Um, and it worked beautifully. Because I realised that what I had to teach the students to do they were information rich, but they had no idea how to sort information out. The problem with Google is, do you believe it or not? Most of it you shouldn't believe. Uh, lots of stuff is there that they've just Googled and they assume it's true, and it isn't. I mean, the whole management of COVID is probably traceable to misuse of Google without sufficient critical acumen. Uh, so what I did was very simple. I didn't have to teach till fourth year, so they were honest students. They were just thinking about, they were hoping to get into medical school. They were thinking about graduate school. And I told them at the beginning of the course, um, you've got to fourth year in university. I'm certainly not going to fail you in this course. If we were going to fail you, we should have done it earlier. We could easily have done a lot more failing in year one, which we should have done, but instead we've held our noses and taken your money. But in your case, you're all good students. But uh, so what I'll try and do for you in this course is teach you how to read and how to think. And at the end, the mark I give you will tell you, I think you might make a professor. That's an A plus. I very rarely give one, so don't expect to get one. If I, then the rest of my marks will be organized around what the current requirement is to get Ontario scholarship or to get a, uh, various scholarships. So if I give you a mark that's below that, it means I think don't go to graduate school. They're only going to use you as an underpaid technician and you'll get nothing for it except a, a master's degree that nobody's interested in. If I give you a mark that allows you to do that fairly easily, then you go on to being a PhD. But I haven't given you an A+. plus. It means you're going to spend 10 years and then there won't be a job for you in the university. But that's the way it is. So... Uh, abuse is going on in all sorts of different ways. So first of all, uh, I explained a little bit of biochemistry which had an application to nutrition every time. Uh, and then I gave them a paper 
in that area. Sometimes, as this, this process went on, it could be a good paper, a bad paper, a mediocre paper. That didn't matter to me. I just had to find something that was suitable. And I said, I want you to go away and write a proceed, which is something you want me to do a, a session on at some point. Um, and uh, nobody asked a question. And I said, I want it in in three days so that I can look at them before the next, ne next week's lectures. I won't be so demanding in the future. Um, when they came in next week, uh, they were all good students. They hadn't seen a mark below 80% for two or three years. But nobody got a mark of over 50% on my assignment. You can imagine what was going on. Uh, the atmosphere was not pleasant. I said, now relax. I will not use these marks other than to use them to teach you today what you need to learn but they will not appear on your transcript and they won't influence your average. But none of you, first of all, were honest enough to say that you did not know what a precy was. Now, intellectual pride needs to disappear if you're going to make any real progress. I was very grateful in my own training to a, a senior resident, well, the first one I had in, in in uh, North American terms and I was a first year resident in American terms and he sussed me out very quickly and we were looking at a patient and he simply said the bedside is no place for intellectual pride and he he got me and I, I didn't say anything to him at the time and I've forgotten who he was now but I knew he was right and I had to change that uh, because the bedside is no place for intellectual pride. Uh, one of the questions that should always go into your mind, is there a better doctor for this patient that I could get them to than me? So I then taught them how to do a pracy. And the whole course was based on that process. Each week I would give them, we'd do a bit more biochemistry, I'd give them a paper, they had to go away and read it and then assess it. Because that's what their life is going to be from then on. Who cares about how much you can bring out of your mind at the moment? Nowadays, that is not a problem. Information is freely available. But the minds that can process it are not. And they were in that category. By the time we got to finals, you see, my final exam was... I just gave it them and said, get it in in 24 hours. And I had to change that to 12 because some of them spent 24 hours on it. But it was an 8 to 12 hour exam. And it, it, I would take a paper that had been published in the last week. I didn't know what the exam was going to be on, what the paper was going to be, because I wanted one which didn't have any comment online yet. That would come later. So I could, I could always find an appropriate paper. So there was nothing they could dig out of people's opinion of that paper. That, that hadn't been done yet. So they had to read it and think about it and analyse it, spend some time in the library reading around. And they did well, uh, by and large, um, and it sorted them out. The, the best thing for me was I, I did give a couple of A's out um, to two students who wouldn't have got into graduate school if they hadn't got my A, bringing up their GPA average, to get them over the, the hurdle to get into uh, graduate school. But my examination showed that they'd got very good minds. Uh, one of them said, I always had trouble later. She's now a professor, fully funded. Uh, she said, I always had trouble with 
memorization without understanding. I couldn't do that. I said, I, I, I realized that, and that's perfect. But she wouldn't have gone into graduate school without taking my course. The other one was uh, uh, a guy who'd come to Ottawa U because he was a francophone and he wanted to learn English. and He'd not had a proper education, but again, he'd got a good mind and he did very well. Uh, it's not much out of years and years of teaching, just two that you can remember. But there were obviously others. On one occasion, I was flying across the Atlantic to give some pro-life talks in, uh, in England. And uh, halfway across the Atlantic, uh, uh, a young lady walked, well, re young relative to me, walked down the plane to go, go to the back. And she hesitated as she passed my seat, which was an aisle seat. She didn't stop. But when she came back, she did stop. And she said, oh, you're Professor Patrick, aren't you? I said, yes. And she said, do you remember me? And I said, I'm sorry, no. And she said, well, I took your course 20 years ago. Um, it was the best course I ever took in university because it was the only one that taught me how to think uh, and how to grow up as a thinker. She said, I'm a professor myself now and I use your methods. Um, and I should tell you, you shortened my PhD by a year at least because of what you taught me as to how to think through an area of investigation and what you did first and what you did second and why you did it that way. And we had a nice conversation. And anybody who said they didn't enjoy that would, would be in deep trouble. So that's connecting information and turning it into knowledge. But the next bit is even more difficult because how do you talk about a word that nobody uses anymore? wisdom. And doctors in particular, you need a wise doctor, particularly at the end of your life. In the average inter, uh, intensive care unit, most of what is being done is not being done for the patient. Well, most is an overstatement. But a lot of what is being done is, is being done so that should there be problems later on, the lawyers will not be able to get after the doctors. And it's very expensive. We're wasting a lot of money because lawyers can twist things in ways, particularly in the American system where you can bring somebody who's had a tragedy into court and the jury thinks, well, he's insured. Let's pretend he was uh, responsible. It won't actually hurt him. But it does. I mean, uh, to, to be taken to court and accused of being incompetent, that's devastating never happened to me fortunately I lived in the days before this kind of merciless litigation existed I was never litigated uh, shows how our world has changed uh, it, it is really astonishing my first year in medicine I think my insurance fee was 50 pounds I meet particularly say Ghani people who pay more per year in insurance costs than I ever earned in a year that's a system that's totally out of control. Money being wasted, uh, it's being shoveled down the drain. And it's because of the loss of the understanding of wisdom by the community as a whole. The whole world of what Newbegin calls tacit information, what we know without knowing how we know it. Uh, what happened to us is we grew up, if we grew up in a community, there's certain things you don't do uh, nobody thinks about them. They they have been built into the culture. Uh, 
all cultures have them, even criminal ones. I was just reading this morning of a guy who'd uh, robbed an elderly person at an aid, uh, at a, you know, uh, what do you call them, the, the, the machines that you could get your money out of. And he'd been caught because it was filmed. And he, he was sent to prison. And the guys found out about this, so they beat him up in prison because he'd broken their rules. You don't do that to old people. I mean, a paedophile going to prison has to be in isolation. He will be destroyed. Some things, criminals have their own codes. We all have our codes. Uh, we didn't acquire them by sitting down and thinking about them. We acquired them by the way in which we grew up. Our code has been thinned out over the last little while, particularly by slicing off the whole layer of what we call wisdom. Now, we, we find out about it over time. I mean, in my case, the, the, the turning point was a young man of 19 dying, and his, he asked me, it says in the Bible, if you ask anything in my name, I'll give it to you. I'm dying and I'm 19 and I don't want to. What do you say? Uh, that set me back on my heels, but I had to go back to the wisdom I had acquired. Uh, and it was exactly what he needed and exactly what his mother needed. As she pointed out to me in a letter later, thank God you were there when he needed food for his soul. Uh, that's what T.S. Eliot saw coming in choruses in the rock. Now, what are we doing about it? I don't know. We're not doing much. I, I just listened yesterday to a, a beautiful uh, uh, recording of a talk given at the White Coat Ceremony in the University of Michigan uh, in which uh, a relatively young resident, uh, not resident, a faculty member had been chosen by everybody else to give the talk and she did a beautiful job basically of talking about how you deepen your uh, understanding of what it means to be a human being. I mean we started humanities courses like we started ethics courses. Now humanities courses are better than ethics courses because you have to engage with great writers if it's a decent course and great writers teach you I mean, to have arrived at medical school never having read Dostoevsky, that's a tragedy. I mean, people like that you should be introduced to by the people who teach you. Uh, you're not, it's not happening. So one of the things that, that I discovered that my job is, is to change people's reading habits. And that's wonderful, you know. Uh, I get emails about that every now and again. I mean, it's 20 years since I had a position in the university. Uh, but I get more mail, email about my teaching than I ever got when I taught biochemistry. And it, it's deeply moving. Uh, and obviously, as the place grows darker, people who are standing in the light become more apparent. And Elliot knew the light was going out. It won't go out completely, God promised it won't, but it's certainly uh, problematic. I mean, in my children's generation, uh, the light was brighter. I'm watching my own grandchildren and uh, several of them are struggling because they live in a world that's in deep trouble. So that's 
quotation number one. Do you want to ask any questions before we close that section? No, that's good. If, hopefully you guys enjoyed this. Um, Dr. John did just mention uh, a reading list and how he has helped people change their reading habits over his career. Uh, you can see that reading list at www.johnpatrick.ca. You can find it on his website. Additionally, I was just thinking about it. If you're watching this video on YouTube and or even listening to it on the podcast, I should make it possible so that you can find the link to ask John a question so that you don't have to go type it into a URL. But just look down in the description for a link, click on it, and if you want to ask John a question, you totally can. And tune in next week for the second part in a three-part series about the quote, or I should say the quotations that change the way John thinks. Thanks, John. <laughs>